Uh, we're continuing to work our way through Deuteronomy, so let's go back to chapter 16. We finished 15 last time. This chapter is, I think, a truly remarkable chapter. Uh, it is a summary, remember, of the first four books that uh, Moses had written. So he wanted this summary to be given to Israel just before they went into the Promised Land. And it rehearses here in this chapter uh, some elements from the Exodus in chapter, or Exodus 12 and 13, and other scriptures having to do with the Passover. <coughs> Excuse me. And any of those passages that might have been a little obscure... This seems to me to make quite clear. It makes it so clear, in fact, that some have even surmised that maybe some Jew somewhere added to it and changed it around uh, so that it would fit what they believed. I don't think that is the case, because when you put all the scriptures together on the Passover, you come up with the same answer that uh, Moses explains here in Deuteronomy 16. It says, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the eternal your God, for in the month of Abib the eternal your God brought you forth out of uh, Mitzrayim by night. I'm not going to take a great deal of time in here, but there are so many important issues. Uh, in Exodus 12, there are those that since uh, the Israelites had been commanded to stay in their homes until morning, that they could not have left. And yet here it says they came out by night. Uh, is that a contradiction? No. The danger had passed. The firstborn were killed. And it was still yet nighttime when Pharaoh got back to Moses with the message and said, Get out of here or we will kill you. Uh, so they were to start that evening, remember, with their sandals on, their staff in their hand, their loins girded, and ready to go. Now, depending on when God chose to kill the firstborn, it could have been any time from midnight till dawn. But they had been told, be ready. Had they known it would be, let's say, sunrise or ten in the morning, uh, why spend the night with your sandals on and your staff in your hand? In other words, they were to be ready any time during the night, but they were told out of caution, you should be prepared to stay in until morning. But when the cries arose of the firstborn dying, and then the message came from Pharaoh, they did what Pharaoh said. They immediately got out. And it was during the first month in the spring uh, when the barley was to ripen, that gives you a timing of the year, not the time uh, to... The, the, the ripe barley had nothing to do with the calendar. That's all in the heavens. It had to do with the time of year, the springtime. Anyway, you shall therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the eternal your God of the flock and the herd in the place which the eternal shall choose to place his name there. Uh, we've seen in many places that that ultimately became Jerusalem. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. 
Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread therewith. Now, he's talking in context here about sacrificing the Passover at the beginning of the 14th, and that they were not to have leavened bread with it, and they were to eat leavened bread, unleavened bread, excuse me, for seven days. So that seems to place the beginning of the eating of unleavened bread uh, at the time of the Passover. And we'll see that confirmed here in a moment. Even the bread of affliction, affliction, for you came forth out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day when you came forth out of the land of Mitzrayim all the days of your life. Now what he's saying there is they ate the Passover They came out that same night, after midnight, and that is the day that they are to remember when they came out of the land of Mitzrayim. So they did not come out on uh, the 15th, they came out on the 14th. I think that this makes that very clear. That's the day to have in remembrance. Why would you remember the next day? You remember the day you were delivered. And there shall be no leavened bread seen with you in all your coasts seven days, neither shall there anything of the flesh which you sacrifice the first day in the evening remain all night till the morning. Now they were instructed in Exodus 12, 11 or 12, that they were to kill the lamb, and they were to eat it all that night, and any part that remained was to be burned with fire in the morning. And that was Passover night. And he calls that day, the evening when they, it started, the evening when they sacrificed the Passover, the first day. A little later on, it'll say six more days down here. So it was a total of seven, beginning with the 14th, not the 15th. Verse 5, You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the eternal your God gives you, but at the place which the eternal your God shall choose to place his name, uh, his name in, there you shall sacrifice the Passover. At evening, at the going down of the sun, at the season that you came forth out of Mitzrayim. So, Abib is in the season of the spring, and he makes it very clear here, stating it two different ways. It's not in the afternoon sometime. It is at evening time, at the going down of the sun. When the sun goes down, could that be any clearer? The ones that do it on the 15th, some of them say, well, at noontime the sun starts going down. It didn't say when it starts to go down. It says, at the going down. If you want to stretch things, uh, you can reason any way you want to. But it says evening. Of course, they say, well, it starts to be evening at 1201. That doesn't make any sense. Leviticus 23 makes it very clear when speaking of atonement that it was at the beginning of the day, in the evening, at the end of the ninth, beginning the tenth, at sundown. So that should be fairly clear. (coughs) Verse 7, And you shall roast and eat it in the place which the eternal your God shall choose, 
and you shall turn in the morning and go into your tents. So we have been doing more of a vigil on that night, staying awake to meditate, to think, to pray, and so on. But this instruction was, uh, I guess they were outside, and they turned and went into their tents in the morning. I don't know what the intent is that we should stay up all night outside the tent, in tent, out of tent. Uh, But in any case, uh, they apparently went in to catch some Z's in the morning. We have the afternoon service on that day to give us time if we stay up for a vigil to sleep in. Anyway, verse 8, interesting the way this one starts. Six days shall you eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day shall be a solemn assembly to the eternal your God. You shall do no work therein. So he counts the first day as a holy day, then six more days, the last of which would be the seventh out of a total of seven, is a solemn assembly, and no work is to be done, a Sabbath in other words. So he gives here, in the context, that the Passover is on the first day of seven. It's not an eight-day festival as we used to observe. This one, this one makes it crystal clear, I think. All right, verse 9. Seven weeks shall you number to you. Begin to number the seven weeks from such time as you begin to put the sickle to the corn, and you shall keep the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, to the Eternal, your God, with the tribute of a freewill offering of your hand, which you shall give to the Eternal, your God, according as the Eternal God has blessed you. Now, when did they begin to put the sickle to the corn? Uh, that was on the Sunday following uh, the weekly Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread. Let's, let's come back there real quickly, Leviticus 23, and see how that is. Because he's summarizing here what we have back here. <clears throat> okay, verse 15 of Leviticus 23. And you shall count to you from the morrow after the Sabbath. There are people who say, well, this is the morrow after the first holy day during the Days of Unleavened Bread. Or... Some maybe have even said the seventh day, um, which is also a commanded assembly. But I think the context here explains that cannot be. It has to be the weekly Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. You count to you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. So it is count 50, 50 days, but it has to end on a Sabbath, therefore it has to begin and end on a Sabbath. Because to get 49 days and end on a Sabbath, that's the only thing you can do. The week, I mean the annual holy days, first and seventh day of unleavened bread can fall on any day of the week. But Wave Sheep Sunday is when Christ was offered after he was resurrected at the end of the Sabbath, uh, following three days in the grave. So, his life shows that it is also a Sunday, the day after the weekly Sabbath. Uh, 
Uh, verse 11, now back in Deuteronomy 16. And you shall rejoice before the eternal your God, you and your son and your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, the Levite that is within your gates, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow that are among you, in the place which the eternal your God has chosen to place his name there. We've read other scriptures which indicate, uh, in, in speaking of second tithe, and I think I, we read that just, I think it was just last week. Yeah, in chapter 14, that we could either go to the place that God has placed his name, or if the distance was too far, you could do it at home. Now, in a worldwide work, such as we had in Worldwide, it was literally impossible for people to all come to one gathering place. Financially and so on, it could not be done. So they essentially kept it at home, even though they might travel, let's say, in South Africa to Cape Town or Johannesburg or wherever they, Pretoria, wherever they put the feast that year, uh, Elizabethtown, uh, they would go there to keep the feast. <clears throat> essentially at home, not coming to the promised land. Now we understand you don't go to Jerusalem in the Middle East, uh, that the promised land is here, and that Jerusalem is here. We don't know the exact location yet, nor do we have control of it, but we are in the Jerusalem area, and God has said that Jerusalem will be built as villages or towns without walls, and we're, I think, the first of such of those towns. So we perhaps are accounted part of Jerusalem, even though we're, uh, as the crow flies, about 75 miles from it. We were there once, right on the site, or very near the site, and I anticipate that we will be back there. I don't know exactly when or how it will work out, but uh, certainly, once we know for sure, uh, I almost feel we are compelled to be there. Maybe the weather, in some ways, doesn't permit meeting outside until we can have a building built there. Uh, maybe... The climate's going to change. God indicates that in Isaiah and in Zechariah. So, the time is very close for that. Anyway, verse 12, And you shall remember that you were a bondman in Mitzrayim, and you shall observe and do these statutes. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days, after that which you have gathered in the corn and your wine. Uh, so, your main crops were harvested in late summer, and uh, then you brought them to the fall festivals. We know Exodus 34:22 says that the Feast of Tabernacles has to come after the turning of the year or the fall equinox. <coughs> and you rejoice there with all those named above. Verse 15, Seven days shall you keep a solemn feast to the eternal, uh, your God in the place which the eternal shall choose. He says that over and over again. You can't just do this anywhere. It has to be where God so chooses. Not man so chooses, but God. Because the eternal your God shall bless you in all your increase and in all the works of your hands, therefore you shall surely rejoice. He does mention rejoicing several times in terms of the Feast of Tabernacles. I know I emphasized for it the fruit of the Spirit known as joy this year at the feast. So rejoicing in joy or to be a part of that because it represents the time when Christ will return 
and peace and prosperity will begin to encompass the earth. So it is a time of great rejoicing. Anyway, he says in verse 16, Three times in a year shall all your males appear before the eternal your God in the place which he shall choose. Uh, other places show, as it does above, that you can rejoice with your son and your daughter, your manservant and maidservant and so on, in the place. Uh, but because of pregnancy, because of distance, because of uh, drought or lack of income or whatever, uh, not everyone had to be there by absolute command. But the head of the household is commanded to be there regardless. Many, many scriptures back up that he is supposed to bring his family with him, not just come alone. But certainly the head of household had to be represented. <clears throat> and the others, if at all possible. I know we used to make an exception uh, because of some births that occurred at the feast. I think Mr. Armstrong said they couldn't come to the feast if they were beyond eight months. I think that was the uh, cut-off time, uh, just because of the complications that, that could occur. Anyway, uh, the man has to be there, and everybody else should be there if at all possible, put it that way. And not to appear before the eternal empty. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessings of the eternal your God, which he has given you. So we are to keep the feast, and we are to give a cheerful offering at the feast. Three times in a year, or three seasons. The three seasons are the Passover season, Pentecost, and tabernacles, as he said above. Uh, verse 18 changes the subject. Judges and officers shall you make you in all your gates, which eternal your God gives you, throughout your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. Now, he says this probably uh, thinking back to when Jethro had, had advised him that he should have lesser judges or authorities to judge smaller matters, and he would take the greater matters because he had a line of people way out there that needed counsel and judgment, and, and he couldn't cover it all. So here he's instructing them as they're about to go into the land that they are to have people who are appointed to make judgments, uh, to sort out issues and arguments and so on. <coughs> He'll explain that more later. Verse 19, you shall not twist or rest judgment. You shall not respect persons, neither take a gift, for a gift does blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. So anyone in a position of judgment was to be very, very careful about gifts, bribes, whatever. We know that in some countries in, our, in the world, bribes are just part of the way of life. If you want something done in Mexico, you bribe whatever official happens to be in charge of that. It's just the way business is done. And there's more and more of that going on in America. A lot of it didn't meet the eye, but with our politicians in Washington, it's becoming more and more obvious that all kinds of corporate payola and that kind of thing is going on. That should not be, because it does pervert judgment. That which is altogether just shall you follow. 
You shall, you may live, or that you may live, and inherit the land which the eternal your God gives you. You shall not plant you a grove of any trees near to the altar of the eternal your God which you shall make, neither shall you set you up any image which the eternal your God hates. So, the type of trees they were planting weren't just decorative. They planted trees in certain order, in order to go and worship there. And in fact, in some cases, they even, once the trees got big enough, they lopped the limbs off, so they were actually phallic symbols, uh, and that's where they worshipped their pagan gods. Not to do that. I don't think that means our little fruitless mulberries we have here at the corner of the building. Uh, those aren't there for any religious purpose whatsoever. They're there for a little bit of decoration. But this was for religious worship for sure. Now chapter 17. You shall not sacrifice unto the eternal your God any bullock or sheep wherein is blemish, uh, or any evil favoredness, for that is an abomination to the eternal your God. Uh, these all pointed to Christ, of course. Uh, he was a lamb without blemish. So when they were to sacrifice even physical animals, they were not to be crippled, they were not to be blind or deaf or, or anything of that nature. They were to be, in that sense, perfect animals, just as Christ was perfect. So we are to bring the best we possibly can before God. I think that's why it's important that we dress up somewhat uh, above what we normally would during the work week to come before God, just as a matter of respect to Him. You know, sometimes around here we're out working outside and we can wear tattered or torn or, or even dirty clothes sometimes because we're doing dirty work. But I wouldn't want to come before God as offering myself to Him or before Him to worship in that condition. Now, that doesn't mean in the middle of the work day you can't stop and pray with your dirty clothes on. But here we have a formal coming before God. So even as the lamb was not to be uh, blemished in any way, we are to come before God looking unblemished, looking as good as we can, wearing our Saturday best, I guess you'd say, rather than Sunday best that they used to say in in uh, Protestant churches. If there be found among you, within any of the gates which the eternal your God gives you, man or woman that has wrought wickedness in the sight of the eternal your God in transgressing his covenant. He made a covenant with the Ten Commandments and with the statutes and judgments that went with it. And if there was a serious transgression of that covenant, some sins were not unto death, but some were. If anyone transgresses his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and if it be told you and you have heard of it and inquired diligently and beheld or behold, it be true, and the thing certain that such abomination is worked in Israel, then shall you bring forth that man or that woman which have committed that wicked thing under your gates, even that man or that woman, and shall stone them with stones till they die. 
So breaking the commandments brought a death penalty. He specifically singles out here some type of idolatry, worshiping a wrong god, a false god, Satan, or any of the false gods that are out there that he has spawned. The way the wages of sin is death, we find in Romans 6.23. And we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. But Christ died for us, being more important than any of us. And therefore, through his mercy and his grace, we are allowed to live rather than be stoned, since this administration of physical death uh, is no longer in effect for the church. It should still be in effect for the nation around us, because they are not under the new covenant, but the old, even though they ignore it completely today, or almost completely. <clears throat> but this could extend to any of God's commandments. Remember, in Colossians, I think it is, it says that covetousness is idolatry. So, if you break one, you break them all. The first one specifically is idolatry, but the tenth one is also idolatry, Paul says. So, if anyone chose not to follow the ways of God, they were to be stoned to death. Is that why the Apostle John said not to allow within your house anyone who was not preaching true doctrine? That's why we don't listen to Protestant preachers and Catholic masses and all that, is because God says that that is the worship of a different God. People give Christ lip service, but they disobey. And you have to worship in spirit and in truth. Otherwise, it is a false worship, and people worship they know not what. And if you listen to Satan's ministers who transform themselves as angels of light, <clears throat> you are disobeying this command. Now, let's notice the conditions under which uh, this penalty of death could come. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. There had to be two or three eyewitnesses to the sin, otherwise the person would not be stoned. It is too easy for one person to have a gripe against another and make a false accusation, which could lead to a death penalty. So it had to be two, and even better, three witnesses to that sin. Now, these all tie in with Matthew 18, which actually is essentially a quote from Deuteronomy 18 and 19, as we'll see, or you know, 17 and 18, both. <clears throat> in Matthew 18, it says if someone sins against you, you go to them alone and try to sort out the situation. If not, you take two or three witnesses. Now, they have to be actual witnesses of the sin, bear in mind. Just as here. These had to be eyewitnesses. They had to see the sin in order to come forth as a witness. 
It couldn't be that you make this accusation and you get one or two of your friends who didn't actually see it and bring them as a witness for you. That couldn't work because they're your friends on your side and they had to be eyewitnesses. That would be true also in Matthew 18. You can't have an infraction from some other person and then just get a couple of your friends or whoever you can round up to come as a witness against the person who allegedly sinned. You could bring one or two to witness the confrontation. It shouldn't be a confrontation really anyway. Uh, But that would not fulfill the Scripture. The Scripture is two or three actual witnesses. So don't think for a moment that you can just get a friend or two and then go confront the person, you having told them the story. That's hearsay. That's gossip. That's just your opinion. It doesn't hold water in court unless it is an eyewitness of the situation. Let's not misuse and abuse Matthew 18. He even says, uh, Paul said, that you're not even to hear something against a minister without two or three witnesses, an elder it says. Don't even listen to it unless you have two or three actual witnesses, not just you and two people that you told. That's gossip. That's hearsay. It's not a witness. Let's understand the difference. He's talking about a death penalty here. We're talking about friendship and brotherhood, perhaps, more in Matthew 18, the way we tend to try to apply it. But if you go back to the original source of God's mind on this matter, it had to be two or three actual witnesses. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's not you and a couple of buddies, it's actual witnesses. Verse 7, The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall put the evil away from among you. In other words, you have to stomp your own snakes. If you bring, or then brought a witness against someone, and had another witness or two, then you had to throw the first stones. You couldn't get a judgment against somebody and then stand back and say, okay guys, get him. Couldn't do that. That tended to make you maybe a little bit more honest if you had to actually pick up a rock and try to smash someone's head in with it. If there arise a matter too hard for you in judgment, between blood and blood, between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and get you up into the place which the eternal your God shall choose. In other words, the seat of the government that would have been established in the land. So, if you had a serious issue or an argument or a a fight between two people or more, and it was knotty and involved and difficult to answer, 
and witnesses were not as forthcoming and as clear as they ought to be. In other words, it was a very hard judgment to make. Then you were to take it higher. This is the same thing as Matthew 18. Settle things between two people, if at all possible, and become friends and brethren when it's done. You're not there to prove to them that they're a bad person. You're there to heal a relationship, to fix it. And if there are witnesses beyond just you and that person, you can then take it there. If that does not settle it, then it says you take it to the church. Well, now, what does take it to the church mean? People have assumed that that means you have a vote of the entire congregation or the whole nation of Israel. And that is not what is meant at all, and we will see that very clearly here. You go to the place God shows, and verse 9 says, You shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judges that shall be in those days, and inquire, and they shall show you the sentence of judgment. So, it did not go to the populace in general for a vote on the matter. It went to those who had been placed in positions of authority, the ministry, the judges, to make a decision in that case. And you shall do according to the sentence which they of that place, which the eternal shall, uh, shall choose, shall show you, and you shall observe to do according to all that they inform you. So, if it cannot be settled on a one-to-one or a two-to-three-to-one basis, then it is to go to those whom God has set in a place of authority to render a judgment, and that judgment had to be followed. You could not say, well, I don't like that answer. I'll go do what I want to do. Verse 11, according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach you, and according to the judgment which they shall tell you, you shall do. You shall not decline from the sentence which they shall show you to the right hand nor to the left. We could have used this in that series of sermons I did on government. I mean, the Bible is full of it. It's all the way through. These were binding judgments. When a matter was too big to be handled on a small level, then it was to go to those who had been placed as judges over the whole congregation. Verse 12, And the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken to the priest that stands to minister there before the eternal your God, or unto the judge, even that man shall die, and you shall put away the evil from Israel. So when a judgment was made by the authorities that God had set, and anyone chose not to follow that judgment, they were to die. Now, does God put teeth in it or not? Were those judges and the Levites in charge, or were they not? If they were not, then you wouldn't have to die. But God made it very clear that if a judgment needed to be rendered to settle an issue, it was to be followed, and you could not presume not to follow it, or you died. This is pretty serious business. It applies spiritually in the church as well. 
That's why the ministry can actually disfellowship people and mark them and turn them over, as Paul says, to Satan the devil for the destruction of the flesh until they repent. And then when they do repent, they're to come back. And then they're to be accepted. No one holds a grudge. This is carried forward into the New Testament. It doesn't come down to physical death, but it could have ramifications in terms of spiritual death. When the ministry makes a judgment and turns someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, God honors that. And it is a death penalty unless they repent. Lake of fire penalty, I mean, not physical death. But lake of fire penalty, unless they repent and change, overcome and grow. Now it can be, I understand, that there are those who are not legally uh, in the ministry, that God has not placed there, will show in time. But in terms of God putting power and authority there, it certainly did and does exist. And all the people shall hear and fear and do no more presumptuously. If someone decides to ignore the judgments that made and gets killed, the next one might think twice before doing that. Verse 14, when you are come to the land which the eternal your God gives you, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. You shall in any wise set him king over you, whom the eternal your God shall choose. One from among your brethren shall you set king over you. You may not set a stranger over you, which is not your brother. Uh, God made it clear whom he wanted. Remember the people chose Saul because he was head and shoulders above everyone else, and they liked his looks. So God chose from among the sons of Jesse, and Jesse took all the older sons, the handsome, tall, whatever, that he thought God might choose and brought them before the prophet. And the prophet looked at all those and said, God hasn't chosen any of these. Do you have any more sons? Well, got little David out there minding the sheep. He's not very important. Bring him. And in truth, that's the one God chose. So God, from the beginning, has chosen whom he will as leaders. We'll see a little later, if we get to it today, that anyone who presumes to take that position is putting himself in great jeopardy. It has to be through the system that God has set up. And there are some instructions here for someone who is put in that position of authority. He shall not multiply horses to himself. Uh, multiplying horses uh, implied warfare. Uh, lots of horses, lots of fighting men. Nor cause the people to return to Mitzrayim to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Eternal has said to you, you shall henceforth return no more that way. So, if they wanted to have lots of horses and lots of fighting men and take the people back to where the captivity they'd come out of, he says, no, don't do that. Just as we today 
stay away from the world that we came out of. God called us out of it. We're not to go back to it. We're not to rub shoulders with it or have anything to do with it, essentially. Other than have to dwell in it. Paul said, you know, you can't do it all together unless you'd have to leave the planet. But we can do all that it was, is within our capacity to keep ourselves apart from the world around us. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. He could have wives, he could have silver and gold, but not great amounts of either. David had a few wives, and he got in enough trouble. Solomon had a thousand, well, wives and concubines combined, and his heart departed from God. And that's why in the New Testament we are instructed not to marry outside the truth, because an unconverted mate will tend to pull us away from God just by the weight of being there, even though they're not even perhaps trying to. And it shall be, when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book, out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And that shall be with him, and shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Eternal, his God, to keep all the words of this law and the statutes to do them. So anyone God puts in a position of leadership that he chooses should read the Bible quite regularly to be sure that he remembers the ways of God. That his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. It's easy to get the big head, be swelled up with pride and vanity and ego if you're in the position of leadership or kingship or whatever. Uh, in the ministry, the same is true. We had a lot of experience with that, where some of the, even the local pastors out in the field ministry, uh, because they had been to Ambassador College and because they were in a position of authority, began to feel that they were much better than the people. And none are, none were. Uh, we're all the same before God. Sinners, trying to do what is right. But there were many cases where the lording over the people began to take place, and they were treating people as lower than they, and trying to tell them everything to do in their lives one way or another, and it became quite uh, a problem. But God warns against that, <clears throat> not to feel that you're better than anybody else. And then he turned not aside from the commandments to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So God did allow kingship. They were to choose the one that he wanted, and after they chose Saul, he chose David. Uh, gave him the power, gave him the authority, but the king who was put in that position had to be very careful how he ruled, lest there be abuses. Okay, verse chapter 18. <clears throat> the priests, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Eternal made by fire in his inheritance. Therefore shall they have no inheritance among their brethren. The Eternal is their inheritance, as he has said to them. So, when they divided up the land, all the tribes received land that they were to have and to hold, but the Levites did not get the inheritance of land. 
there are, let's see, verse 3, And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be ox or sheep, and they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the maw. Uh, the first fruit also of your corn, of your wine, of your oil, and the fruit of the fleece of your sheep shall you give him. For the eternal your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand a minister in the name of the eternal, him and his sons, forever. So they were given a special job to do, and they were not to inherit the land. And if a Levite come from any of your gates out of all Israel, where he sojourned or lived, and come with all the desire of his mind to the place which the Eternal shall choose, then shall he minister in the name of the Eternal as God, as all his brethren the Levites do, which stand there before the Eternal. So God appointed them by tribe as the Levites, the ones to administer the sacrifices and do the religious part. In the New Testament, he sets them aside by ordination uh, from those who have the authority to so do. Uh, they shall have like portions to eat beside that which comes of the sale of his patrimony. In other words, the priests were to live off of the tithe of the land. God says the first tenth was his, and he gave it to the Levites for their sustenance. So they were not given the land, but given that ten percent. And that was not to be diminished, even though they might be, uh, might have assets of their own. That's what this is saying, that which comes of the sale of his patrimony. In other words, if he was living somewhere else and decided he wanted to serve uh, in Jerusalem, he would sell what he had, and then he would go and serve at Jerusalem in the temple but he kept the assets which he had sold, and he also did not have what was given him there diminished. He got his full share. Uh, they had no inheritance of land, but that did not mean that the priests or the Levites could not own land. There are several examples of that. I won't turn to First Kings 2.26 it is which showed them owning land. Uh, Jeremiah 32, 7, God specifically told Jeremiah to go buy a field. So he was in the, the priesthood, or, and he was told to go do that. He was a prophet. Uh, Christ himself owned a house, Mark two fifteen. I don't know how many people realize that. But it says that Jesus went into his house. He owned the house. Matthew eight fourteen shows that Peter owned the house. Christ went into Peter's house. Uh, Philip the Evangelist owned the house, Acts twenty one eight, uh, and went into his house. So they could own. Uh, it's just that they did not, by division, when they went into the land receive a portion of the land, but they received tithes and animals and so on, and they could buy houses or land or fields or whatever they wished with that. Verse 9, when you are come unto the, eternal, uh, unto the land which the eternal your God gives you, you shall not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. 
There shall not be found among you anyone that makes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. <coughs> they sometimes had actual child sacrifices. Uh, we do the same thing without fire, I guess, today, uh, with abortion. And killing of the children. Uh, or that uses divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer, one who promotes uh, the worship of false gods. So those who set themselves up to uh, look into the future, whether it be through crystal ball or Ouija boards or tarot cards or whatever methods they have, we are to treat that like death itself. Stay away from anything that gives an in to Satan and the demons. So, when people start foretelling the future, beware. If they read the Bible and look for the things to happen that God says, that's not seeking the spirit world or whatever power you might try to tap into. Watching events, which Christ told us to do, to see if they fit the Bible, is the kind of foretelling that we should do. But anyone who seems to have that power or ability, we should be very, very careful of and stay away from. If they have any sense at all of being able to foretell things through seance or wizardry or whatever form this might take in our society today. We should be very suspicious of those things and truly avoid them. Uh, for all that do these things are an abomination to the eternal. So any of your, what do they call them, the, the places you've got fortune telling, all those things, you see them sometimes in the streets, usually it's the uh, older part of town or whatever, you see all those fortune tellers and that kind of thing. Avoid them. I don't even like to look at the signs they have up. I don't want anything to do with that. Because God says it is an abomination and it is driven by Satan the devil. And I've seen people get in serious trouble by going to fortune tellers in my own experience with people that I knew. And uh, awful things have happened. That's one reason I am so sensitive to it. It's because I've seen it firsthand and I've seen the damage it has done to people and to families. And it is nothing to take lightly whatsoever. I wouldn't have a Ouija board anywhere on my property in my house or those cards or any of the, even a fake crystal ball I wouldn't have. Brethren, I have seen too much demonism in the time that I have been walking this earth and in the ministry. And there are so many things that you see in movies and on television and over the internet that are getting into that. So it's not just something you see on the street. These demonic movies and demonic games that people play, 
are in the same category. Death, destruction, violence, violent video games are ungodly. They should not be in our houses at all. Can we grasp that? I have known ministers, evangelists even, that rank in the church that recommended Star Wars and some of these that have gotten worse since. And even the Harry Potter, people supposedly in the ministry of God recommending Harry Potter and its demonism, pure and simple, is what it is. And we go and look at it as innocent family entertainment. No, it is not. It is the very subtle way that Satan can introduce these things into the minds of people and look what is happening to our society if you don't believe it. It is getting more and more violent. People have less respect for one another. And we are headed downhill. Parents, you should not let demonism in your home. Period. And that's what that stuff is. It fits right here. God looks upon it as abomination. And we need to be very, very careful what we go to do as entertainment. Verse 13, you shall be mature or upright, perfect with eternal your God. For these nations which you shall possess, hearkened and are observers of times and to diviners, but as for you, the eternal your God has not suffered you so to do. So we have an ungodly nation around us. And much of what Hollywood puts out, including Disney, has its roots in these things. Fairies, unreal, inhuman, and now we're getting into all kinds of demonism in terms of uh, zombies and all kinds of stuff that they're bringing forth in so-called entertainment. It's demonism, pure and simple. Avoid it like the plague. Now, God said it would be around us. Then it is around us today. Remember, we're talking about the latter days here. We read that further back in this book. So if it exists, it must be here today. And if it is here today, which God said it would be, then what form does it take? Identify it. What form does it take in our modern society? And you don't have to look very far to begin to see the seeds of demonism all around us. Satan's way and his culture. A word to the wives. Verse 15, the eternal, your God, will raise up to you a prophet from the midst of you, of your brethren, like to me, and to him you shall hearken. So God says, don't hearken to any other power, any other influence, but that he would raise up someone who would teach the truth. And you should listen there. According to all that you desired of the eternal your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the eternal my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. In other words, the people there at Sinai said, We don't want to hear God. So God said, Okay, listen to Moses. 
And in the generation since, God has appointed those who would teach the truth. He called Herbert Armstrong to teach the truth. He was ordained by probably the remnant of the Sardis Church, who was a church of God. So he had legitimate beginnings, not illegitimate. And by the fruits that we saw over the decades after God began to call him and his ordination, uh, we saw him teach the truth of this book. Not all of it, he didn't understand all of it, but he certainly had much that was basic doctrine correct. And the Eternal said to me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like to you, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to you all that I shall command him. And he immediately did that with Joshua, after Moses was told, You can't go, go die instead. Now, if God does that, he reiterates something we read earlier, verse 19, And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So, if those who are duly constituted read this word to you, you are then held responsible for it by God himself. He does not hold the minister responsible if it's preached, he holds you responsible for the knowledge that you have. God gives us individual free moral agency. He gives us individual responsibility for what we know. And that is why when we learn the truth, if we then depart from it or any part of it, God begins to take his truth and his spirit from us. And we wind up without it and back in the world without true knowledge of God anymore. I've seen it happen to a lot of people. If it comes out of this book, we're responsible for it. Do you see why? And he tells me in here that I am not to let any of his words fall to the ground. That I'm to bring them all before you. And if you've noticed over the years, I go to every part of the Bible. I'm trying to be sure that you hear it all, that you understand it all, that you know it all. Now, we don't understand every little nuance of it. We're still learning, and there's still things I'm sure we will learn. But as we learn it, and we can prove it in here, then we're bound to keep it, and God will hold us accountable for it. And that's why I want you, if we come up with something different or new, to be sure that you see it in this book and follow it. Because your judgment will be based on whether you follow through with what you learn from this book. So he makes us responsible once we hear it. Verse 20. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. Now remember I said earlier that we cannot presume to take a position of teaching God's word to people. It has to be duly given, appointed, called of God. If anyone presumes 
to begin teaching people the Word of God without having God's stamp of approval. They are being presumptuous, and presumption is as witchcraft before God. That puts it in the category of the charmer, the consulter with familiar spirits, the wizard, and the necromancer. Presumption is as witchcraft, Satan worship. We need to be very, very careful before we begin to teach people God's Word that we have been duly authorized to so do. Otherwise, God says it's witchcraft. There's a severe warning, and that is a great danger in the world of the Church of God today. There are many, many people who have set themselves up to begin groups or whatever without having duly been appointed or called of God to so do. And they are putting themselves in great eternal life danger in so doing. Anyone who practices witchcraft was to die. And anyone who does in today's world is not facing a penalty necessarily of physical death, but eternal death. That's how serious this is. Now, why did Paul then say that those who teach the truth or teach the word get double judgment? There's double danger, double jeopardy in teaching the word of God. And Second Peter and Jude warn very strongly of that. It's just a repeat of what we read back here. Anybody who speaks publicly and tries to teach the Word of God had better be sure God commanded him to speak. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the Word which the Eternal has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Eternal, if the thing follow not or come to pass, that is the thing which the Eternal has not spoken, but the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So, A, you must have been authorized to do the teaching, and B, it had better be correct teaching. If it is not correct teaching, then we don't need to fear that person. It had better square with this book. And there are a lot of people in the church today who have presumed to teach, and they're teaching false doctrine that does not fit this book, doesn't even fit this chapter that we've been reading. Well, I think rather than getting into 19, I'll stop there. We'll cover three chapters, and we're about eight after two, so I'll, that's probably enough for today anyway. And we'll get to chapter 19 later.